the most important thing is just by educating the local people about how we can restore the reef and what we can do to conserve our environment. Um, that's the most important thing for protecting our future generations, especially in a village like this. Hello and welcome to the Common Ground podcast. In a time of ecological and climate crisis, of rising inequality and social injustice, it can all seem just a little bit overwhelming. We get it. And that's why Common Ground brings you the stories of those, driven by passion, who are striving fiercely to make our common home better for all who live here. Each week we'll hear from a new guest who will tell us all about the issue that spurred them to take action, to help inspire you to create positive and meaningful change in the world. I'm your host, Chess Fernley, geographer, environmentalist and concerned global citizen. I was so thrilled this week to be joined by conservationist and NGO founder Zach Bokes. Alongside local villager Katut, Zach started a coral reef conservation project in a small village in northern Bali after seeing the damage being done to the local environment and the reef system. I hope you enjoy our chat as we delve into some of the key issues facing our coral reefs, the power of community engagement, as well as what it's like to set up your own NGO in a country thousands of miles from home. North Bali Reef Conservation is an NGO that I started with a local uh, from Bali. Uh, we started it in 2017 um, and have been working as an NGO for the last three years. Uh, we've learned a lot in that time and I'm looking forward to talking to you all about it. That's fantastic. And I, I wonder whether you could sort of take us back, set the scene for us. How did you end up in Bali? Yeah, of course. How on earth did you start the project? And, and why was it that you started the project? Was it a sort of a love for coral reefs or? Yeah, of course. So um, I've been visiting Bali for quite a long time, many years. Um, and for as long as I've been visiting Bali, I've noticed that there's definitely been a big issue in terms of marine conservation, reef conservation, plastic awareness, um, to be honest, just environmental awareness in general too. And um, when I first when I first went, I must have been 18 years old, something like that. And I um, uh, I noticed this, and I met a local a local guy called Ketut. Um, and Ketut is a very interesting guy. He uh, started an NGO many years ago, maybe 10 or 11 years ago. Um, and this is just uh, it's an ed- educational uh, NGO, and it focuses on bringing children out of the poverty gap in Indonesia, in Bali, in the village that he lives in, um, by educating them and providing them skills that's going to enable them to get out of the village. So for me, he was a really inspirational person to meet. Um, and upon meeting him, I was just really, I know that I wanted to be part of his life, and I know that he, want, I want, that he should be part of my life, if that makes sense. In Bali, uh, all the families work very closely together, and it's very much a community, community net, community-led uh, feel about the place. And uh, the community sort of been working together to educate themselves about conservation for some time. But um, Katut said to me, "Hey Zach, I've been living in this village all my life. Um, I think he's around thirty-five years old." And he said to me that in the last 10 or 15 years he's really noticed that local fishermen are finding it really hard now there's much less fish available their fishing yield has significantly decreased and this is because the area straight out in front of us the reef that we so that's so important to us has been destroyed um, mostly due to unsustainable fishing 
Um, and he said to me, Zach, I really need to do something about this to help my community out. Um, but I didn't have any knowledge about reef conservation, environmental science. Do you want to do this together? Do you want to start something that's going to provide the local people with a sustainable livelihood um, and enable them to do something good for the environment for once? So, of course, this was a great opportunity for me. And I um, accepted it with open arms, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, and um, that's, that's, a, that's the start of how North Bali Reef Conservation was founded. It sounds like sort of the gods brought you both together. You know, it seems like you had the skills in the environmental and sciences and obviously he had the sort of the background, the experience of being a fisherman. Yeah. It seems like you were kind of a, like a, this partnership was always meant to happen. Yeah, def definitely. I'd agree with that. Um, and in my experience, the most important thing about running any form of conservation program is to have local engagement. And I would have never, ever been able to do anything without that. Yeah. And I, I wonder, and um, that sort of segues quite nicely into sort of understanding the background in terms of how did the reef get to this position where yeah. it, it needed, you know, rescuing essentially. So the area we're working in is a fishing village called Tianya. Um, it's a very traditional fishing village. For anyone that's been to Bali before, they've most likely been to the south of Bali, uh, where it's very much uh, commercialised and tourist-driven. tourist, tourist driven. However, the village we're working in is in the north, and as I said, it's a very remote village, very culturally interesting because it hasn't been touched by tourism yet. And it hasn't got that Western influence, unlike a lot of the places that, that uh, people generally visit when they go on holiday there. Um, so people aren't educated in the same way as Western people are. And um, as a consequence, the fishermen unfortunately did a lot of damage to the reef. Um, a lot of fishing on the reef itself um, caused physical damage to the, to the corals. And also by putting fishermen's anchors down, that drags along the reef and uh, also does physical damage to the corals. Um, alongside the physical damage, there's also um, plastic pollution, which is a big problem in Indonesia, obviously in the world too, um, but I've really noticed it in Indonesia. Um, and then unfortunately there's also additional uh, global problems to coral reefs which of course aren't the fault of local people um, climate climate change induced coral reef bleaching um, anyway that's a whole new no 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 that's, it's, a, um, that, that's that's a whole new topic in itself no, well it's I mean it's part of a I guess you can say it's a sort of accumulation of it's not just one exactly thing right. the coral reef yeah. is being sort of hit by lots of sort of different problems as, as you said, accumulation of these problems uh, led to a great decline in the health of the coral in the, in the village. Um, it's a three kilometre beach and we've been working in a specific area where the coral has been particularly, particularly destroyed to the point where it's pretty much just a flat area covered in sand. Um, so as a result, there's not much life because all of the fish that, um, all of the fish that are in the area need some sort of um, some sort of physical hard substrate to hide in. Um, this gives them protection from currents, from other predators. Um, a lot, of, most coral reef fish require this protective, protective space. Um, and when the area is just flat sand with no protective space, that's not a great ecosystem for the fish to live in. And as a consequence, there's not really any fish there. And that's why a lot of the fishermen noticed declines in the, the fish that they were catching. So you had these conversations and you decided, right, I've got to do something about this. What was your first step in sort of turning that thought into a, a reality? So um, the most important thing was to be able to get the local fishermen on board. As I said before, without initially solving the problem, 
you can't continue to make it better if that makes sense yeah so um we myself and Katut put together a plan to bring together a community of local fishermen that were particularly interested in doing something about this interest in conservation protecting their future generations um and this was quite hard as you can imagine um yeah. especially in a village traditional village with a very much a village mindset where local people uh, aren't particularly subject to much change um, so to be able to make a big proposal like this is it's a big deal in a small village i suppose um, so um we definitely had some fishermen that were on board from the start um, some that were a bit on the fence like yeah this could work um, but i'm not sure and then some that weren't at all interested um, but it was very important for us to get as many of them more as we could, because uh, as I said, you need to solve the problem before you start working on it. And so guess, we, yeah, sorry. Go no, ahead. no, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, and, and, you know, despite the fact that you weren't necessarily to, able to get all fishermen on board at the start, the fact that you had a few, did that give you sort of hope and encouragement to sort of continue the project forwards? Exactly. Yeah, I, it did. It definitely did. Um, and that initial support, enabled us to get where we were um, so the first thing we did was um, basically it's quite a funny idea but uh, we brainstormed lots of different ways that we can get the local community interested the ones that weren't already interested um, and it's quite funny but uh, t-shirts out there are quite a big thing um, <laughs> I don't know why don't ask me why <laughs> but um, we printed out uh, we made a logo uh, we printed out t-shirts that basically had our had our name on had an inspirational logo on um, and um, gave basically drove around and gave them to all the fishermen that we thought would be interested in being part of our program. And that in itself sort of made the fishermen think, right, okay, well, maybe I am part of a team here. Um, because for me, it was important to not come along and be like, hey, I'm a Western guy that's starting a program in your village. It's, it was really important for me to not be like that. Um, but for instead to start something that the community can continue um, and for them to be proud of. And I always say it's not it's not my project, it's the community's project. That's such, such an interesting point because you want this project to extend, I'm not saying that you're going to be leaving anytime soon, but it's, it's a legacy, isn't it? You want this to for generations and generations and yeah, generations exactly. to come. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, and I suppose it's important for me to also point out that uh, although I said that damage had been caused by the community in the past, I cannot blame them for it because it all comes down to education. Um, and of course, the fishermen aren't thinking, hey, I'm going to go along and destroy this reef. Um, it's, a, it's a hard time out there. There's a lot of really poor people. And of course, you have to do what you can to be able to provide for your family. So you've got the fishermen on board. They're wearing their T-shirts. Where do you go next? Yeah, yeah exactly. So... Um, there were two things, two things how we, that we did to start uh, North Bali Reef Conservation. The first was enforcing a local no-take zone. Um, for people that don't know what that means, it's basically what it says on the tin. It's an area where the corals and the environment is left to restore, uh, where fishermen aren't allowed to take from it. Um, so again, this wasn't something that we came along and said, you guys have to do this. It was something the fishermen really wanted to do. Um, and it was something that really makes me proud to see now because they enforce it by themselves. Um, initially, it started from a reef that was heavily fished, a lot of, a lot of uh, anthropogenic pressure on the reef, to now an area that's 
protected, proudly protected, I should say, by the fishermen. Um, and I suppose it warms my soul to see the fishermen um, sitting there and patrolling that area that they they are so really proud of. It shows, um, you know, that level of engagement and understanding that this, you know, by doing this, it's going to have long term positive benefits, not just, you know, for the, the health of the coral, but also for them. That's exactly right. And I really found that it's very important to emphasize the uh, benefit, the direct benefits that they're going to have from it, too, because it's very it's very easy to say, yeah, the corals are going to be protected, but actually this is going to benefit you because you're going to get more fish as a result. And that's really where they start to become interested. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, this, that was the first thing we did. Um, and that continues to run as part of a community project. Uh, the second thing we did was start building artificial reefs. And that really is the basis of North Bali Reef Conservation. That's the main focus of our organization. Um, so basically, uh, the artificial reefs that we build are cement, sand, and calcium structures. They're the size of a small table and um, they're deployed in an area where the corals have been destroyed in the past. So they act as that hard substrate, as I was explaining, for fish to, to live in um, and to provide a hard substrate for coral to grow on um, and the basis of the whole ecosystem. So um, I didn't have any knowledge about artificial reefs before I started North Bay Reef Conservation, other than that I know they can improve biodiversity. Um, so we approached various other organisations within Indonesia that um, that were able to help us to provide us with some guidance and assistance. Um, and it was really inspirational to see how many people really did want to help us. How wonderful that they were willing to sort of share that information and understood the benefit, you know, not yeah. just keeping that information to themselves. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something that's quite nice about the about the conservation scientist community is that not always but most of the time if you're doing something good for biodiversity then people really want to help and want to get on board with that so we started building artificial reefs um, we had a small team of fishermen at the time i think about 10. it was really small scale at the time i think we built maybe 10 structures a week um, we went for them to dry we took the structures out on the fishing boats surveyed an area that would be appropriate for the artificial reefs to be deployed and almost instantly we noticed that they were improving the biodiversity and they were bringing life back to the area. Um, so we've been doing that uh, for nearly three years. Um, we've now deployed about six and a half thousand artificial reef structures. Oh my goodness me, six and a half thousand! <laughs> so it's, it's quite, quite a large area that we cover. The artificial reefs are placed next to a natural coral reef, which is in reasonably good, pristine condition. The reason they're placed next to them is that so it allows fish to migrate from the initially healthy reef to the new artificial reef. Um, so I would describe uh, well, any reef, but whether it's natural or artificial, as a city of some sorts, but underwater. Um, and that's how all reefs should look. So um, if you can imagine a city, it has large buildings, small buildings, roads, pathways, um, just a lot of structural diversity. They're deployed underwater off the boat and then they're arranged underwater so um, we after deployment we scuba dive and arrange the structures and they can be reasonably randomly arranged i suppose um, they don't have a strict pattern that we have to follow to arrange them and we do this on purpose because reefs are very random um, and if everything was done the same then it would provide less habitat niches for fish to come and colonize the area fantastic so sort of three, three and a half years later, 
six and a half thousand units later. What, what impact have you seen? Like, what, what, what results yeah. have you been seeing? So we ran a artificial reef monitoring program, um, which we're continuing to do. Um, and that program is actually forming the basis of my PhD, which is just starting soon. And the, from the initial evaluation of the artificial reefs, it's been really positive. So that's great for us. Um, and it's, it's great to know that it's working. So um, I could talk about this for hours and I wouldn't want to bore people too much. But oh, basically, um, <laughs> basically uh, we compared the artificial reefs to the nearby coral reef that I was explaining. And uh, we compared this to the area where we haven't deployed anything yet. Uh, just a flat sandy area um, so we deployed an underwater camera for three months onto each site but every day for three months um, and noted all of the species that were present at each site and the abundance of the species um, so after doing this we found out that our artificial reefs at the time which was over a year ago now have had already improved the biodiversity by six or seven times so we really do know that it's working staggering that's unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? And we know now that the artificial reefs replicate the coral reefs very well, um, approximately 95% similar to the coral reefs in terms of the community structure that's, that's colonising them. So we do know that it's working. How does that feel to know that, <laughs> that that's a legacy that you're leaving on the planet? I think it's really nice for all of us. Um, I, don't, I would never want to say that it feels good to me because it's everyone that's been involved mm. we've had. I probably want to say thousands of people that we can say now have been responsible for doing this project. It feels great for everyone. Um, and one of the n nicest things about our programme is that everyone involved can simply go out snorkelling um, and look at the artificial reefs on a clear day. You can really see that they're, they have so much life on. Um, so I suppose it's nice to know that there are almost immediate benefits of it. It, you've obviously done a lot of work with locals. Are international people allowed to get involved in a project? Do you have volunteers? Yeah, we do. So, um, so, so after running for a few months, um, we decided that, hey, this is a lot of work. We want to rebuild an area of reef, um, and we can't we can't do it by ourselves. Um, so we started North Bali Reef Conservation officially, which is now a volunteering program. So uh, we get volunteers from all around the world, um, a lot from Europe, America, all over to be honest, and they come throughout the year to help with our various programmes. Um, so the main programme that volunteers help with is our artificial reef programme. Um, and basically how this works is we build structures throughout the week and then usually every Thursday once the structures are dry we'll deploy them. Um, and these basically everything from volunteers building the structures, carrying the structures out to the boats, helping uh, the boats to be, the structures to be deployed off the boat. And then the next morning we'll scuba dive and arrange the structures underwater, as I said, in clusters to provide optimal space for biodiversity. So it's a hugely interactive project. That's correct, yeah. yeah. Um, we also have various other uh, programs for our volunteers as well. So um, not only are we working with local fishermen in terms of education, but also local schools and generally educating the children in schools about conservation, environmental issues, um, things like that. Because unfortunately in Indonesia, it seems that there's not that much focus on environmental education. Um, and I think that's so important for young, young people that are going to be living in a village that's literally on the sea. All of the children pretty much live 
on the beach or next to the beach. Um, yet so many of them don't understand about the marine environment. So it's really important for us to and our volunteers to be able to come and educate the, the local children about, well, firstly about the beautiful life that they have right in front of them, but also the issues that they face and most importantly, what they can do about that. Um, and alongside this, we're running a plastic recycling centre. Tell me what. Unfortunately, um, in our region of Bali, which I believe is the poorest region, um, the government don't provide any any form of plastic um, recycling um, infrastructure or facilities. So um, before we started this plastic recycling program, local people were left to their own devices to dispose of all of their waste, um, which unfortunately uh, comes down to either burning it or dumping it somewhere. Um, and the worst part about dumping it somewhere is that during the rainy season, a lot of the plastic that's been dumped eventually makes it down to the river and then of course the sea. So um, we decided to set up a plastic recycling centre. We were really lucky to receive a grant from a Canadian organisation called Nautic that allowed us to create uh, the first plastic recycling centre in this region. And basically um, we have various community plastic recycling points where local people can bring their plastic to. Um, and then also with the local school children, they bring their plastic to the school uh, from their homes. Um, it all gets sorted by both the local school children and our volunteers, and then gets recycled uh, into useful community materials like bricks, tiles, and beams. Um, and these, um, these materials can be used within the community to rebuild roads, um, things like that. The plastic comes in, how does it get transformed into sort of tyres and bits yeah, that's like right. that? So um, it's probably important for me to say that we can't recycle all forms of plastic and um, I don't, also don't think that's uh, a perfect solution to it. Um, the perfect solution in my eyes would be for everybody to stop using plastic or at least as much as they could, um, which is something that we're working in to educate local children about. But um, coming back to your initial question, how does it work? So. We shred the plastic, things like bottles, cuts, straws. Uh, this all comes into our area, it gets sorted, it gets shredded first. So uh, we have each day we have our volunteers and local school children coming to our plastic recycling centre, uh, where our volunteers not only help the children with the activities, but also educate them about these issues. Um, after this, after it gets shredded, it gets put into our injection machines. Um, where basically the plastic gets heated up uh, and then melted into a mould, um, for example, a mould moulds plastic into a tyre. If if nobody's if, if you haven't heard of it before, there's a great organisation called Precious Plastic, um, and it's uh, it's a project that uh, encourages people from all around the world to set up plastic recycling projects uh, like like our one. Uh, so Precious Plastic provided us with a lot of. Uh, information on how to do this um, it's not something that I'd ever set up before no. um, and I suppose it was very overwhelming at the start well how do I set up a plastic recycling centre um, Absolutely. but as I said before we received a lot of help from from the Canadian organisation Nautic um, and together we we found somebody that could make the machines for us um, and it all started from there we've we've since received lots of generous grants from people which have enabled us to improve our facilities in the recycling centre and be able to increase the capacity because when we first started we were getting a lot of plastic as you can imagine and the machines are quite slow um, we're still we're still looking for more donations for our plastic recycling centre to be able to 
improve the facilities um, uh, and be able to take on as much plastic as we can. You've described an incredible journey. I was just wondering whether you could talk a little bit about what the process was like. I mean, it's if I was thinking about starting an NGO in this country, I think I would be terrified. But you've managed to set up an NGO you know, in a country that's thousands of miles away from, from home. What, what, what's that process like? So, so I think that there's definitely a lot of challenges. Um, but I think that the people that I've worked with along the way have been so inspiring that it's made all of the hard parts seem easy, if that makes sense. Um, and to be able to see direct benefits almost, almost instantly is very uplifting, I guess. Um, so to be able to... To be able to say that I've worked with great people along the way um, and had a great team of people, it's, um, it's just really made everything happen. And um, I would really encourage anybody that's looking to start something to just, when you can, get out there. And things have fallen into place for me, I suppose, and for North Bali Conservation. Um, and I'm sure that for anybody looking to set up something, like North Bali Leaf Conservation Environmental NGO, people really like to support organisations that are doing good things for the environment. Um, and that has enabled us to get where we are today. Fantastic. I wondered whether you could reflect on one of your best moments along the way. Are there any standout mm -hmm. moments? Yeah, I've definitely got one which I was actually thinking about recently. It's one that hasn't really ever left me since it happened. Um, uh, so, when we were doing the uh, artificial reef monitoring program that I was talking about earlier, um, it involved deploying an, an underwater camera. Uh, when I'm deploying this uh, underwater camera unit, I need help from somebody um, because it's a, it's a two-person job to be able to deploy an underwater camera. Sometimes, if volunteers weren't available, I would get local the locals to help me. Uh, if all the local fishermen were out fishing, then it would often be the kids that would help me do this. Um, and um, a lot of the kids can't swim, which is quite surprising. As I said, they, li they live on the beach, but a lot of them can't swim. Um, and they really, really love going out on the stand-up paddleboard because um, they love being in the sea. Um, they're just not confident to swim. We received a donation of kids-sized uh, snorkels and snorkel masks for the kids to use. Um, so often what we would do when we deploy the cameras, I'd take uh, one of the kids out with me on the, on the boat or on the stand-up paddleboard. And as I was paddling out, uh, the kids would just put their head on the water with a snorkel and just look, look under the reef. Basically, one thing that was always sticks with me is one morning when we were deploying the camera unit, I was out with a young boy called Kadek, who's 11 years old. Um, doesn't speak a great deal of English, um, but enough to get, enough to get by. Um, and we were deploying the camera unit as he had his uh, mask under the ground, uh, under the water, sorry and we uh, put the camera unit down and he shouted, Zach, Zach, Manta, Manta, uh, implying a manta ray. I've never seen, other than small, small stingrays, I've never seen any rays there before. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, he's, he's just joking around with me. He's just being silly. I put, I, I took the mask off him, I put my head underwater and uh, there, 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 was no, there was no manta there. Gave, gave the, the mask back to him. He put his head underwater again, and sure enough, came up and said, Zach, Zach, there's a manta. Um, I took the mask off him again, put my head underwater, but I couldn't. And then, I think maybe just a few minutes later, just after we'd uh, 
deployed the camera unit, a huge eagle ray came soaring out the water just next to us. Oh flying my gosh. In the air. Um, and then just made a huge splash. Must have been several, only several meters away from us. Um, I was just shocked that, you know, he, he wasn't joking and he wasn't winding me up. Actually, no. Actually being completely serious. Um, and that in itself was really special because other than small rays, I've never seen anything like, a, like an eagle ray there before. Really amazing for me and also quite inspiring for him as well because to be able to see something like that pretty much the first time you go out snorkeling is well, not only incredible but also very lucky. And that kind of memory sort of will stick with him, I'm sure, forever. Yeah, you know? I hope so. I, I hope so. Yeah. What would you like people to take away from your story? Are there any sort of key takeaways? Um, what would I like people to take away from it? Um, as, I, as I previously mentioned, I think that um, as easy as it is for me to say, if anybody does have any ideas that do feel crazy, ideas related to doing something that's great for the environment. Perhaps it might feel crazy and unachievable. Um, and it definitely did for me at certain times, especially when we were starting, um, almost like a stupid, ridiculous idea. <laughs> um, but as I said before, things do work out and things, and people really do want to support you. Um, and I've been overwhelmed by the amazing people that I've worked with and the inspirational support that I've received um, because great people want to help with great projects I suppose um, so I would just encourage people to get out and do what they can. That's fantastic. While I'm while I'm speaking I suppose I would just want to thank everybody that has been involved in our project so far um, everything from the local people the local fishermen that we've worked with my incredible team um, also the great support of volunteer from the volunteers that we've had over the two and a half years that we've been running as a volunteer organisation. Um, without all of their support, we wouldn't have been able to get anywhere near where we are today. Oh, that's lovely. What a lovely ending. And if people wanted to get in touch with you, find out more about the project, find out more about volunteering, can they do that? Yes, of course. Um, I've shared our social media channels with, with, with you. Um, as a team, we run the social media. Um, and uh, we, we, as I said, we're always looking for volunteers. We're a volunteer program year round. Um, so if people are interested in coming to volunteer, contacting me directly, please share our details with the podcast. I will do, absolutely. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for sort of sharing No, thank you, today. thank you for your time as well. No, it's been honestly a, such an honor, so inspirational. No, thank you, really, really kind of you. I hope you've come away from that as inspired as I was. It just goes to show the power of finding your passion and starting something that's going to have an incredible legacy for years to come. I was particularly touched by how Zach felt that he and Katut were almost destined to find each other, and I'm so pleased that they did. As Zach mentioned, they're always looking for volunteers to support the project, so if you want to get in touch with him or the rest of the team, then please do search North Barley Reef Conservation on Google or Facebook, or find them at North underscore Barley underscore Reef underscore Conservation on Instagram. I'll also make sure all of these links are in the show notes too. If you have any thoughts, comments or questions, please do let us know. We're at Common Ground Co on Instagram. So until next week, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you all soon.